Though you might have thought so at first, it's not an accident, it's not an error that we are in the book of Matthew to close out our series on the book of Jonah. In fact, um, I think it's only by looking at the words that we're going to look at this morning, the words of Jesus in the New Testament, that I think we're able to understand and make sense of the narrative of the Old Testament book of Jonah. And I think perhaps what we're going to be able to do is answer some questions about the, the book of Jonah in the first place. Why, why do we have the book of Jonah? We've been going through it for the past five or so odd weeks. We've been understanding the narrative. It's not just a narrative of a man uh, being swallowed by a fish. It's a, it's a narrative of a prophet being shown exactly what God's grace is. Why do we have that story? Why is it preserved for you and for me to read thousands of years later? What purpose does it serve in the overall narrative of the Bible? You could answer those questions in a number of ways, and many have. Commentaries will all differ on this point in the book of Jonah. From one perspective, you could look at the book of Jonah and, and show and see how, how God has demonstrated mercy even for the outsiders. Indeed, I think that's a, a very well-founded point. Even for ones like Ninevites, Gentiles, those who shouldn't have the mercy of God are lavished in it anyways. And I think that's, that way of reading the story makes it really meaningful and impactful for the people of Israel. Because as, as we've noted, just as Jonah learned how God, he learned this firsthand, how God can pour out his grace on, on, on those who are outside of the covenant. They don't belong to the people of Israel, but they're given grace anyways. So too should Israel learn that same lesson. They were... Just as undeserving as Nineveh to receive anything from the hand of the Lord. You could read the story that way. You could read the story from the perspective of Jonah in which God is just demonstrating such amazing merciful control in order to get his prophet to stop from running. And indeed that's a good, good application to make as well. You can make this... Book of Jonah about a myriad of things, but I think it's interesting. Leave it to the Lord Jesus himself to tell us, I think, the, the best way to understand the story. Which brings us to Matthew chapter 12. In the text that we read. Where Jesus is approached by a group of scribes and Pharisees. These, these guys who sort of constituted Jesus' nemesis, nemesis when he was on this earth. These, these guys who were always giving him a hard time. Always trying to expose him. Always trying to trip him up in some sort of way. And here they come up to him and they demand him, he give them a sign. Verse 38 again. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees. Answered him, which leads us to believe that there's something previous to this. They answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This little interaction or something similar appears again, you'll notice in Matthew chapter 16. But also this interaction is repeated in almost every gospel. Where... These guys, scribes and Pharisees, they come up to Jesus and they demand basically that Jesus do something miraculous. 
That's essentially what they're asking for. When they're asking for a sign, they are liter- quite literally demanding, give us, give us proof. Give us some unmistakable token that you are who you say you are. That you are, in fact, a person who's been sent from heaven. Give us, give us a sign. Give us a miracle. Show us something extraordinary that we can know for certain that what you're saying is true. And of course, the irony should strike us in the face because the irony is thick. Because Jesus has been doing that since he entered public ministry. He's been doing that the whole time. And more to the point, in every scene prior to this request in verse 38, Jesus has given more than adequate affirmation that he is who he says he is. Go back with me. We're not going to read all the verses, but if you look at verses 1 through 8 of this very same chapter, what do you have? You have the scene where Jesus totally dismantles the Pharisees' view on the Sabbath day by declaring that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 9, verse 9 through 14, Jesus ups the ante. Even more, by healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, no less. A guy, he has a withered hand, it's all mangled and marled, and yet Jesus, with a word, heals it back to life. And then in verse 22, Jesus heals a man who was blind and mute and oppressed by demons. Which is just to say, in every single interaction that precedes this request, Jesus was giving very plain evidence that he was the one for whom Israel had waited for all these long years. That's what they were meant to see in in all of these interactions, in all of these little scenes and scenarios. That, That he was Israel's consolation, that he was Israel's comfort, that he was Israel's salvation, that he, Jesus of Nazareth, was the one through whom the Spirit of God would heal and deliver. It makes me think, you can go with me or you can write it down, Isaiah chapter 61. A very famous prophecy of the coming Messiah. And notice how the Messiah is described. Isaiah 61 verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. You see he's been doing that. (laughs) If you remember that is the exact passage that Jesus opens up to in Luke chapter 4. When he preaches in that synagogue. He's making it very obvious. He's the one. He's the one who has come to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the prisoners free, and declare the great and the coming day of the Lord, the kingdom of God. The Pharisees just couldn't see it, or perhaps they didn't want to. 
Matthew, though, is making this very plain. If you're back in Matthew 12, he's making this as plain as day. He's trying to make sure that no one could uh, miss the fact that this Jesus is directly fulfilling the word of God. Look at verse 15. It says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Matthew is directly quoting, actually, from Isaiah 42, a text of scripture that was considered, even by many, and even in Jesus' day, to be a text that, that foretold the coming Messiah. So you see, Matthew is connecting the dots for us. He's saying this equals this. Jesus equals the Messiah. Here, you can see, it's very apparent Matthew's showing us that. He's showing how very apparent it was or should have been that Jesus was the Messiah. The one that Israel had waited for. And by the way, this is something Matthew does all over the place. Matthew's gospel is the, as you might know, the most Old Testament heavy gospel. It's because he's trying to demonstrate that very fact. Israel's long-awaited king is here and his name is Jesus. And the point is, I think, the Pharisees should have been able to make the same connection. They should have been able to see this. They should have been able to perceive what was happening in their midst. They weren't dunces. They weren't dummies. The Pharisees were some of the most well-educated men of their day. They were experts in the law of Moses. They knew what the scripture said. They knew what it prophesied. They knew what it foretold. They knew what it was talking about. And having put much of what we would call the Old Testament to memory. But in their smugness and in their self-righteousness, they were blind. They were blind from being able to see what should have been so apparent, what should have been plain as day. And in fact, their blindness and unbelief is so thick that even even when they were able to pay attention to some of Jesus' wonders that he was performing, they chalk it up to the fact that Jesus was in league with Satan. (laughs) Look again at verse 22. Jesus heals that man who's demon oppressed. It says, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Amazing. A wonder. Clearly a sign of who Jesus was. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Can this be the one that we've been waiting for? But when, notice, the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul. The prince of demons that this man casts out demons. So Jesus heals this guy. Blind, mute, demon oppressed. And yet all that healing is attributed to the fact that Jesus is himself demon oppressed. 
This, of course, doesn't make a lick of sense if you just stop and think about it. And the Pharisees should have been able to see that this doesn't make a lick of sense. Why would a demon be expelling demons? That doesn't make any sense. And in fact, that's what Jesus essentially says to them. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house is divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Is that what you really think? That's what I think Jesus said. Is that that really what you think? Or are you just being annoying? (laughs) Because that's nonsense. It's nonsense to think that I would be demon-possessed and that I would be expelling other demons. The point is, Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees and anyone else who might listen to see that he was already doing what was prophesied that he would come and do. He's giving deliverance to those who are in bondage. He's preaching good news to those who are desperate for it. He is healing the blind and the weak and the sick and those who are afflicted by the evil one. He's giving credence after credence and evidence after evidence that he, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ, Israel's Messiah, their long sought after hope. Which then brings us back to verse 38 because this makes that request then. We have all these signs, all of these evidences, and then here they come marching up to Jesus. Can you give us a sign? You see how incredibly ironic but also incredibly ignorant and also insulting that request would be? (laughs) Give us something more, they say. Which was essentially a slap in Jesus' face. No wonder he replies in such a snippy way. (laughs) He calls them evil and adulterous. Notice what he says. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it. (laughs) You can't have it both ways, I think Jesus says. You can't have it both ways. You can't, you can't see signs only to say they're demonic, only to then pine for more signs. You're, you're going around in circles right now. And this is the tragedy of unbelief. This is the tragedy of self-righteousness. It leads you to make very ironic, very foolish judgments. And of course, that's what the Pharisees are doing. They are so blind by their self-righteousness and their self-importance and their self-conceit. They couldn't see what was right in front of them. They couldn't see what was right in their very midst. That he was the Christ and he was standing in front of them, showing them, showing them himself. And of Jesus, of course, is going to expose just how blind they really were. Just how faithless they really were. Which should stun us because these are the Pharisees. We always cast them as the villains, and they do a lot of foolish things. The Pharisees were Bible men. They were men committed to the word. If you know anything about the Pharisees, they sort of came to be in that sort of 400-year intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. There's 400 years where there's not a lot of revelation happening. And they were men who sort of uh, found the scriptures and, and brought them back into prominence. They were devoted. They were religious men. So they were truly biblical authorities in their day. But the sad 
The sad case is that for all of their knowledge and for all of their expertise, they couldn't see what was right in front of them. And Jesus says, shows them that they are just actually just a bunch of infidels who had missed the point. And to illustrate this, that's when Jesus refers to the life and ministry of the prophet Jonah. Notice again, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. As students of the word, These scribes and Pharisees would have been very familiar with who Jonah was and what he was known for, just as you and I are. We, when we hear that word Jonah, what do we think of? The fish, and he gets swallowed by it, probably. Maybe they had a similar sort of image come to their mind, but whatever the case is, they were not ready at all. They were not ready at all for uh, Jesus to assert that his ministry is going to be in some way similar to Jonah's. Actually, as Jesus says, his would be greater because something greater than Jonah was there. And I think this brings up something we should just pause and consider. The the question I couldn't, that I had to wrestle with, and perhaps you would wrestle with too, is just pause. Why would Jesus want to compare himself to Jonah in the first place? Seems like an odd connection. Out of all the prophets that Jesus could have chosen... To say, my ministry is going to be like this. He chose Jonah. The one with perhaps the worst street cred out of all the prophets. The guy who ran away. Again, what is Jonah primarily remembered for? Not the repentance of Nineveh. He's remembered for what? Running away from God. When the call of God came to him, he ran. He fled. Why would Jesus want to to appear in the same breath as the most reluctant and the most obstinate prophet Israel maybe has ever seen? Why not compare himself to Isaiah, whose sermons are incredibly profound and thought-provoking? Or Jeremiah, the one who is always preaching repentance? Why Why not the prophet Elisha? Why not say, my ministry is going to be like that? No, he says, Jonah. Why would he want to associate himself with a preacher who ran away from the will of the Lord Jehovah? Well, I think it's because of this. Because out of all the other prophets, it's actually Jonah who demonstrates what Jesus took on flesh to accomplish So in a way you could say, reading about Jonah lets us see the reason why Jesus is here in the first place. Let me explain. Jesus alludes to this in verse 39. He he talks about that. That's the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
And I think it's interesting what he says in the fact that that is the only sign that that generation will be given. I'm not going to give you any other sign. No other sign I'm going to give to you to prove who I, that I, what I say, who I say I am, that's who I am. No other sign is going to be given unto you except the sign of Jonah. And that's when he makes this striking link between what Jonah experienced in the stomach of a fish and what the Son of Man would soon endure. In the heart of the earth. Again, look at verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here again, we have to pause. Jesus has just made this connection that Jonah's extended stay in the stinky belly of the great fish is connected to and linked to the death of the Messiah. The heart of the earth is literally just a shorthand for being put in the grave. Which again helps us understand what Jonah is all about. No. Jonah did not literally die when he was swallowed by the Lord's fish that was appointed to swallow him. But he was as good as dead. Remember he calls that stomach uh, the belly of Sheol. And so for all intents and purposes that fish's stomach was Jonah's grave. It was a place of no return. So we could put it like this. Jonah got a taste of death before he preached to those who were doomed to die. And the point is in a figurative way. Jonah stands as a, as a prophet who rose from the grave in order to preach a message of deliverance for those who were facing certain disaster. Who does that sound like? Because it just so happens that that is precisely what Jesus would soon accomplish, though not figuratively, though not allegorically, but literally in his bodily death and resurrection. And that's what he's telling these stubborn, unbelieving Pharisees. That's the sign you're going to get. That's the sign I'm going to give you. Is it going to be a sign that's going to rehearse the sign of Jonah, a prophet rising from the grave and preaching to you the, one, the same sort of sign that precipitated the revival of the people of Nineveh. Only my sign is going to be much truer and much greater because something much greater than Jonah is here. See, that's what the sign of Jonah is meant to allude to. A miracle of a prophet returning from the dead in order to preach to those who are dying. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus, indeed we could say, Jesus is the true and better Jonah because he is not a prophet who goes outside of the city and sits in self-concerned disgust. But he is a prophet who goes outside the city to die a self-sacrificial death in order to bring about deliverance for the world. That's who Jesus is. The Son of Man, he tells them would not go to a figurative grave before preaching to the nations. He would really and truly die. He will get a taste of death for everyone in order to free everyone from the sting of death. That's who Jesus is. That's what he has come to accomplish. And more to the point, he says, that is the only sign I'm going to give you. My death and resurrection. But here's the kicker. Still wouldn't be enough. 
still wouldn't move the needle on the Pharisees' belief. And in fact, their unbelief was so blinding that even after the greatest sign of all, they would still want more. You see, this is why Jesus uses the repentance of Nineveh to indict them for their blatant rejection of him. Notice again, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Ninevites were brought to repentance after being given the sign of Jonah, after being uh, given the sermon of a very reluctant prophet. And behold, me, I am the true and better one. And you still don't believe. And you still don't believe I am who I say I am. Even after a much truer, much greater sign. How tragic. Still didn't cause them to believe. They were still waiting around for a sign. And the point is this. Is that in many ways. I think this is a problem. That is still wreaking havoc on the church. To this day. The reason why. Videos. Go viral. To use that slang term nowadays. And folks flock by the thousands to supposed faith healers and the like. Why do they do that? It's because I think they're still waiting for a sign. They're still waiting for something amazing to happen. They're still like the Pharisees. Show us something. Show us something miraculous. As if that is what is going to finally cause them to believe and to convince them that God's word is true. We just need to see a sign. We just need to see a miracle. We just need to see something in that church service. And you see, our attention is stolen by smooth-talking prosperity preachers and showy faith healers as if they have what we need, as if they have what's missing, as if they have what our faith has been looking for. But the fact of the matter is they don't. They're peddling signs as the magic elixir for faith when really all they have is nothing. They have a charade. I, I, I don't... I don't I don't mean to sound so cynical, and I don't mean to sound so dismissive, and I'm not saying that miraculous signs can't still happen. What I am saying is this. We shouldn't be waiting around for something amazing to happen before we believe. I was reminded of, back in 2019, I don't make a habit of disparaging a pastor. I would never want to do that, but he put a lot of this out in public, so, and I'm not going to give you his name, so it's, it's okay. In 2019, a pastor, again, he went viral, as they say, for very publicly, very shamelessly denouncing his faith and his church. Why? Why did he do that? A series, a long string of posts on Twitter, citing this, that thing, and the other. After 20 years of ministry and 40 years of being a Christian, he says, it's not for me anymore. I'm leaving. I don't believe. Why? You know what he cites? Because he never witnessed anything supernatural. No signs. And the tragic irony is, as he says, he lost everything. 
But I don't think it was for the reason that he thinks. He lost everything because he was waiting around for a sign that he already had. You and I this morning, we already have the greatest sign that God could ever give that he is who he says he is, that his son is who he says he is. What do we have? Jesus' death and resurrection. It's right here in this word. It's the only sign that's co-signed by the Trinity. And what's more, it's the only sign upon which the church has ever been founded we are here because the decades of believers, centuries of those who are faithful to the word of God, have come to the word of God and preached the word of God as declaring nothing but the death and resurrection of Jesus as the hope for every sinner. If you don't believe me, if you go to the book of Acts, you'll be greeted by signs and wonders for sure, yeah. People are getting... Healed. People are speaking in tongues. But I think it's really fascinating that those never serve as the pillars that hold up the church itself. The stanchion of the church, the strength of the church, is always and must always be rooted in Jesus' death and resurrection. Actually, watch. Look. Go with me. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. You got to see this pattern. Really quick and and then we'll close. Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 22. Peter's preaching on Pentecost. What does he say? Men of Israel. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know. This Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Chapter 3, look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified this servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. Go with me to chapter 4 verse 33. And with great power. Notice the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And so it goes throughout the narrative of the book of Acts. You will always find the predominant theme that what has rooted the church in what it is. What has always established the church in what it is. Is nothing more or less than the death and resurrection of Jesus held up as the, as the bedrock of all belief. The church, we might say, is founded upon the sign of Jonah. It's founded upon death and resurrection. All those other things are not, are not our foundation. You know what's really fascinating? You know what's really... And 
that if you're, if you're talking to a, a person that wants to debate, this is not a good argument. It's an argument from silence. But I think it's a really interesting thing to notice. In the books of First and Second Timothy, you know what you don't find? You never find Paul commissioning Timothy to make sure he's teaching his people how to speak in tongues. Or to lay hands and heal someone. You'll never find it. Instead, what does he do? Preach the word. Preach the word. And what is the word about? What is it all concerned about? It's concerned about Jesus' taking on of your death and mine because we sinned. And we, that sin demanded an eternal punishment because it was a sin against an eternally holy God. And Jesus took that on his own shoulders and he paid for it and he rose from that death because he is God and the flesh. Thereby the penalty for your sin is paid for. It's done, it's taken away. You see, every time we cross the threshold of church, In a way, we are being given the sign of Jonah all over again. Because every Sunday is a day in which the sign of Jonah is repeated and rehearsed for you. Jesus died and rose again. That is the good news. It's the good news that never changes. It's never altered. It's never going to go away. The gospel's prevailing sign that invites you to repent and to believe is nothing more or less than Jesus dying and rising again. True, true faith needs no other miracle, needs no other sign. We shouldn't be waiting around. Ah, I just need to see this one thing from you, God. I just need to, I just need to see you work in this before, before I really believe. If you're waiting around for signs and wonders, you're missing what God has already done and what He's doing in you or in others. The Christian life is all about death and resurrection because the death and resurrection of Jesus invites us to die and be born again and to walk in newness of life. And each day we're reminded that He did just that for you and for me. You see, The sign of Jonah teaches us not only what Jonah is about, but what the whole Christian life is about. It's about dying. It's about rising again. Not because we can do that. Not because we have any capability of making that happen, but because Jesus has done it on our behalf. My friends, this morning, are you trusting in this sovereign Savior, the true and better Jonah, Are you trusting in the Christ to bring you out of sin and into his glorious light? Let us pray.